Hello and welcome to the Classical Music Pod. We're coming to you on Palindrome Day, the 2nd of the 2nd, 2020. In today's non-symmetrical episode, I explain why Sheku Kanemason is better than Harry Potter. I speak to friend of the pod, Bernard Hughes, about his new disc of music for children. Not now, Bernard, and other stories. We hear an American basketball legend playing a bit of Beethoven. And you'll get to hear the leading lady of the E&O play a kazoo. rendition of the national anthem was taken from the Brexit celebrations at Parliament Square, demonstrating Nigel Farage's disregard for pitch, tempo and the free movement of talented musicians. Indeed, the news this week has, sadly, a rather Brexity flavour. Sir Simon Rattle has vented his Brexit frustrations to the French press this week, telling AFP that the practical difficulties will be immense because there never was any planning, and that whenever we ask government officials what the situation will be, taking instruments from country to country, the answer is, sorry, we have no idea. Rattles Orchestra, the LSO, whose musicians represent 26 countries and for whom customs checks across hard borders take on average 15 hours, will be feeling the impact of this week's Brexit keenly over the next few months. For a comprehensive and excellently written explanation of the problems that the UK music industry now faces, take a look at Michael Hahn's article for The Guardian. There's a link in the description below. This week, another British-born conductor spoke out against our departure from the EU. Andrew Manzi, the principal guest of the Royal Liverpool Philharmonic, told a German newspaper that he's taken Swedish citizenship and that his trust in democracy has been shaken. Crikey. So Mark Elder and the Halle, meanwhile, led a more subtle protest at the Bridgewater Hall on Thursday, the day before Brexit, performing Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, Incidentally, Andre Ryu's version of Ode to Joy has this week topped the iTunes UK singles chart as Remainers flock to download the European anthem in protest. However, the news for UK orchestras isn't all bad. At the Association of British Orchestras conference this week, statistics were released showing that the incomes of UK orchestras from ticket sales and tours have increased by 26% since 2016, indicating a big boost in the popularity of live classical music. It also found that our national orchestras, excluding those run by the BBC, have reached 700,000 people in educational outreach programmes, made 512 recordings, played 3,500 concerts 
and had a total attendance of 4.25 million people since 2016. It will be interesting to see how these stats change over the next four years now that we are no longer in vassalage to the EU. Coronavirus news. The director of Rome's St. Cecilia Conservatoire has suspended lessons for all East Asian students and anybody who has recently been to the Far East until the university doctor has cleared them of coronavirus. In a message sent to 160 teachers at the school, he wrote, Because of the well-known events related to the Chinese epidemic, the lessons of the Oriental students, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, etc., are suspended. I'm not sure Oriental or etc. translate very kindly for the director in this context, so let's hope that's an Italian thing. The UK doesn't have a monopoly on racially motivated actions, it would seem. Perhaps a little more justified is the Boston Symphony's decision to call off its tour to East Asia with Andres Nelsons. The China National Symphony Orchestra in Beijing and Hong Kong Wind Philharmonia have also cancelled all their February concerts. As have the Shanghai Symphony Orchestra and every orchestra in Korea. Although the Shanghai Symphony have been posting homemade videos of them playing, often with families, possibly at the behest of uh, a worried marketing department. Moving on from people who thought they'd be hearing concerts to those who we thought weren't hearing concerts but actually were. A professor of musicology at the Kent State University, Ohio, has uncovered evidence that he believes proves Beethoven was not, in fact, completely deaf when he wrote some of the most groundbreaking works in musical history. Theodore Albrecht told The Observer this weekend that although Beethoven suffered severe deterioration in his hearing, he did not lose it to the very profound depths that musicologists have assumed. Renewed study of Beethoven's famed conversation books, which are notepads kept in order for him to communicate with friends, have apparently revealed 23 direct references to the subject of hearing. And Albrecht, who is translating the entire collection into English for the first time, estimates that several dozen more will show that he could still hear something. Pardon? (laughs) That was Elon Musk's latest track, Don't Doubt Your Vibe, released on SoundCloud this week, along with a teaser picture of himself in a studio. Apparently the vocals and lyrics are entirely his own, who'd have guessed, although some suspect his girlfriend, the pop musician Grimes, had a hand in helping create the track. Tech news. With the help of AI, a team of theoretical physicists have set out to quantify the creativity of 19 of the most prominent composers of recent centuries. They found that Sergei Rachmaninoff, often dismissed by serious music lovers, was the most inventive composer. The study in EPJ, Data Science, looked at 900 compositions for piano written between 1700 and 1910. Their analysis of chord sequences found that neither... Beethoven, Beach, nor Bach match the originality of Rachmaninoff, who is best known for his second and third piano concertos. Classic FM audiences clearly agree his piano concerto number two in C minor has been voted Britain's favourite classical piece eight times in their annual poll. Incidentally, Tim, the King Singers are releasing an a cappella arrangement of the middle movement arranged by Bob Chilcott this Valentine's Day. That's all for the news this week. We leave you with a recording of late basketball legend Kobe Bryant playing Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata with the Luring Quartet in 2014.
analysis. Sam, what slice of delicious music have you got lined up for us this week? I'm going to melt right into your ear holes a piece called When the Earth Stands Still. It's a choral piece I came across when I ventured north. Islington? Or did you get as far as Finsbury Park? Tim, I actually ventured outside the M25 to sit in on a rehearsal with the Halle Youth Choir. I'm sure they appreciated meeting the metropolitan London elite in person. Who's the piece by? It's written by Don MacDonald, a composer currently living in Canada, who works across a variety of genres as a composer, educator, producer and conductor. It sounds like this. In the silence of the moment Before rain comes down There's a deep sigh In the quiet of the forest And the tall trees crown Now hold me Will you take the time to hold me and embrace the chill oh, miss me. Will you take the time? When I emailed him, Don said the piece was written for his wife, Alison Gervin's youth choir, and was deliberately inspired by how contemporary singer-songwriters use their own lyrics and the kind of forms that we come across in those popular songs. It was released on the 2017 album Breath, on which both he and his wife sing every single part in a sort of Jacob Collier, multi-tracking, Grammy-friendly style. And congratulations to Jacob on his two recent wins. Red. Tell us a bit more about what it's like. When the Earth Stood Still is mostly homophonic. All the four voice parts move together in lockstep. When people get those part songs right, it's very effective. If you think about like Finzi's Robert Bridges pieces, because it's like a soloist in harmony with themselves, especially if it's multi-tracked. It's in a compound time with three subdivisions per big beat, what I've heard people in New Orleans call Big Four, or was referred to in the monasteries as Tempus Perfectum, perfect time, which sounds a bit like this. Rather than Tempus Imperfectum, or presumably in New Orleans lingo, less Big Four. Does Tempus Perfectum have three bits because of the Holy Trinity, perchance? That's a very good guess, Tim. It's as good as I've got. So, When the Earth Stood Still is a part song in compound time. Surely there's more to it than that, though. There certainly is. At that Halle rehearsal, they sang several pieces, but When the Earth Stood Still really stuck in my brain and noodled away, so I got to thinking about why I found it effective. As well as its pleasing melodic shapes, there are three particular earworms that have been bouncing around in the popple brain for some time. Here's the first. There's a deep sigh in the quiet of the forest. It's a hemiola. It's not when you lift something too heavy, is it? No, that's a hernia, Tim. The hemiola is a way of creating a change in the rhythmic swing of the piece. It was famously used by our second favourite Leonard, Mr Bernstein, in West Side Story. I like to be in America, okay, be in America. Oh, Mr Nimoy. We have been getting along fine in our compound time with two groups of three per bar sounding like this. One, two, three, four, five, six. The hemiola regroups them into three pairs. One, two, three, four, five, six. Basically, a quick mid-piece switch from perfectum to imperfectum. Here it is in Don's piece again, with added T's in the text to highlight it. Now hold 
Once that dance has been built up, there's another great rhythmic technique deployed, the second of my favourite earworms, cross rhythms. I'm furious! Not that kind? No. A cross rhythm is just any number of beats against any other number of beats in a bar. Here, we've got three against two, which sounds like this is dog food. This is dog food. This is dog food. The two in the bar is this, dog, this, dog. And the three is this is food, this is food. But this is dog food, this is dog food has a rhythmic tension that's very satisfying, as well as being the kind of insult that will get you thrown out of some dinner parties if you keep practising it under your breath. Here's what it sounds like in When the Earth Stood Still. Cause there's no use running Cause the storm's still coming for those of us hoping to combine rhythmic patterns in our day-to-day life, I don't suppose you've got a nifty way of working out any cross-rhythms using a children's maths game, have you? How fortunate you should ask, Tim. Do you remember fizzbuzz? Let's assume I've forgotten. OK, so you go round the circle counting, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and then every multiple of three becomes fizz. One, two, fizz. And any multiple of five becomes buzz. One, two, fizz, four, buzz, fizz. Exactly. When you reach the first multiple of three and five, you've got fizz buzz and a whole bar of your cross rhythm. There'll be three buzzes and five fizzes in that bar. Three against five sounds really hard to process in your head, but if you count fizz buzz, things become much more doable. Fizz buzz, one, two, fizz, four, buzz, fizz, seven, eight, fizz, buzz, eleven, fizz, thirteen, fourteen, fizz buzz, one, two, fizz, four, buzz, fizz, seven, eight, fizz, buzz, eleven, fizz, thirteen, fourteen, fizz buzz. Fizz, buzz, fizz, fizz, buzz, fizz, fizz, buzz. Just change what you're multiplying and that can be your cross rhythm. I'm furious! And third, I want to talk about seconds. Very witty. Whereas the other two factors are rhythmic dissonances, this is a tonal one, McDonald's frequent use of second chords. Seconds are a conventional major triad, degrees 1, 3 and 5 on the scale but with an added second. Ooh, it feels all tingly. Doesn't it? Disney songwriter Alan Menken used them a lot during the 90s when he was getting it absolutely right on the reg. What is that chord? And why does it? What's the word? Yearn. It's technically a dissonance, but the note that the second would resolve down to, the first degree of the scale, is already present in the chord. Here it is in the opening of When the Earth Stood Still. That second just sits there glowing, doesn't it? You might also hear it as a ninth. One, three, five, nine. Which to me sounds really aspirational, reaching, outgrowing its surroundings. That's why it's a chord that worked so well if you're a Disney princess, mermaid, lion, Greek myth, cross-dressing warrior, daughter of a Chinese aristocrat, setting off on an adventure. You're trying to go somewhere new, but leaving something stable. I think that's why this piece resonated with me so much in that particular rehearsal with the Halle kids. All these young musicians were there at the start of their journeys, full of hope about where it will take them, all making music with real ambition and energy. This piece and those chords fit them especially well.
A brand new production of Verdi's Louisa Miller opens on the 12th of February at the Coliseum. It stars soprano Elizabeth Llewellyn in the title role, and so naturally Sam went along to a rehearsal and asked her to play a kazoo. I'm here in the Coliseum Cafe having a nice chat with Elizabeth Llewellyn. Thank you very much for coming and being here. It's a pleasure. We're going to try and do a John Cage 4 minutes 33 super fast interview and I might put a buzzer sound on yeah, it later. Yeah, fingers on the buzzers. <laughs> uh, we'll see how it goes. The opera opens with a birthday party. Mm. What's your best recent birthday present? I think it's possibly afternoon tea at a London hotel. For her birthday, Louisa mm. gets serenaded by the local peasants. If you were serenaded <laughs> on your birthday, yeah. what would the song be and who would be the singing? Oh, John Legend. What would it be? Anything that kind of had come-to-bed eyes vibe about it, I guess. Nice, yeah, yeah. that would work. Yeah. Uh, librettist Camarano relocated the action from princely courts to a Tyrolean village. Yes. Which would you feel more at home in and why? Tyrolean village, I think, because I live in a rural uh, place in Yorkshire. What's your favourite bit of direction you've received as part of this production? Possibly my dancing, uh, which involved flailing arms and legs, and the director wanted to keep it in the show. Verdi includes several lengthy dialogue recits. Who can you talk to for the longest? Possibly my cousin. She's the same age as me. Uh, We're about a week apart in birthdays. And so, yeah, we're like twins. Do you have a favourite line in the opera? Okay, the one that always I always have to remind myself to keep a straight face of. It's only because we've been mucking around in in rehearsals. But my dad says, "I swear on these badges of honour." And the first time he said it, it though his English is wonderful, he's Icelandic. <laughs> it sounded like these badges of honour. <laughs> so every time he gets to that line, I slightly get the giggles. Spoiler alert, romantic interest Rodolfo kills himself, yeah. but also poisons Louisa. Yeah. Is he a good guy, and do you think Louisa would be pissed off by this? Yes. Uh, yes, in answer to the second question. Yeah. Uh, is he a good guy? No, he, he's, he's a very disturbed guy, and I think that she realises that at the end. Is there one particularly vocally challenging moment for Louisa in the opera? <laughs> Oh, that's a leading question. Um, I'd say the, what I call the daddy duet, which uh, Verdi is so good at at doing, you know, Bocanegro is another one when there's a great daddy, daddy daughter duet. But this one is daddy duet on steroids. So I think she's got four or five top C, she's got a top D flat, we've got lots of coloratura and, uh, you know, some quite sort of bravura singing. It's quite a marathon. How would any of that sound played on a kazoo? in recruitment? Yes. If you were writing a job description for someone to play Louisa Miller, Mm. what is in the essential requirements column? Large range. How will you celebrate opening night? Um... I, I generally I'm, I don't do very well with alcohol and singing. Some people can sing and have a pint the night before, and I can't. So it will involve a, a 
goodly amount of alcohol. And will you celebrate closing night differently? Yes, because I have to get on a plane the next day and fly to Germany to sing Aida. <laughs> so it will yeah. be almost the polar opposite. <laughs> it will be like going to bed at nine o'clock or as soon as the curtains come down, I'll be literally going to bed. <laughs> when you're travelling to yes. perform, what can't you be without? My tunes with a CH. And it just sort of reminds me of home, reminds me of childhood, reminds me of, you know, the 80s when there was great music. Um, and, uh, it, yeah, it just makes me feel relaxed and at home. If there was one other piece of music that you would advise we listen to before coming to Louisa Miller, what would you suggest? Oh, that's good. Thanks. Can I have two? Yes. Two pieces of music. I would say in order to get into the party vibe of the beginning of Louisa Miller, listen to something like L'Elysia d'Amore. I was just reminded by a colleague recently just how much fun it was being in that production at Glyndebourne when I was a chorister. So, yes, uh, listen to something like that. And then if you want to get a, a feel for the real sort of emotional sort of punch, uh, laser-like focus that, that Verdi has in his writing... You know, listen to something like Simon Boccanegra or Otello or something, you know, that really is, you're going to get an idea of just the scope of his genius. When they turn your life into a film, who will play you playing Louisa Miller? Uh, well, who would I want playing me, period, would probably be Viola Davis. Whether or not she can play me <laughs> Louisa Miller, that's down to her kind of skill, uh, her skill set and artistry. If you could ask one historical composer to write you an aria, who would it be? It would probably be Puccini. I, don't get me wrong, I love, I love my Verdi and I love Strauss and I really love Mozart, but I think I've, I've discovered the most about myself and about the way that I sing and about what I bring to my craft through singing Puccini. He seems to understand women very well. Mm. And uh, I think that would be quite an interesting, if he was still alive, it would be a really interesting project. Bonus round. Let's complete a limerick. Oh, there was a young girl called Louisa. No pressure. I mean... Um, oh, gosh, that's so hard. I'm sorry. I'm, I don't you know. Who fell in love with an, with an inappropriate geezer. Oh. Um, she said it's all fine. Her father did wine. This is terrible. Oh, um, it's totally working. Uh, and the poison she drank did displease her. It's rubbish, isn't it? It's not a total winner, but okay. I... No, uh, I, mean, I started so well. It's the best Louisa Miller-related limerick I've ever heard. <laughs> It's the only Louisa Miller you've ever heard. It's original content. <laughs> you got to pick a pocket or two. Mendelssohn's Violin Concerto Number no. 2, Movement 2, Andante. I Don't Know How to Love Him, from Andrew Lloyd Webber's Jesus Christ Superstar. I don't know how to love him What to do, how to move 
you got to pick a pocket or two. Help! Hello? This library is enormous! Tim, you've left the reverb on again. Oh, sorry. I was distracted looking through the amazing selection of scores available on the Encoder app. Ooh, what's that? It's a music library app you can download right now. Start with a one-week free trial, then subscribe to access the complete sales and hire catalogues of 100 publishers, including Boozy and Hawks, Baron Writer, Chester and Novello. I must download it from my app store. How do you spell Encoder? N K. O-D-A N-K-O-D-A N-K-O-D-A Subscription feeds your classical addiction. One week for trial gets you going. Annotate and share your It's time, Tim. Tim time? There's no time for that, Tim. It's time to talk about the biggest-selling classical disc of 2020. Sheku's new release of the Elgar Cello Concerto with the London Symphony Orchestra and Simon Rattle, released on Decca. That one. You better like it, Sam. I've heard the Canamasons are an ancient, secret society with branches in every town and city across Europe. They turned against Mozart when he revealed the secrets of their ceremonies in the magic flute. I fear you may be thinking of the Masons, Tim, rather than the Canamasons. Ah, well still, do you like the disc? Tim, I do. And I want to tell you why I think it's better than Harry Potter movies. The makeup of the disc as a whole is a reflection of the current zeitgeist, and it feels contemporary, a little intergenre There are folk songs on the disc, as well as other classical works, and it moves away from the immutable authority of works with a capital W. And how does he make that move? Well, one way is by rearranging pieces. Elgar's Nimrod is on the disc, and it's an arrangement for many, many cellos. It's the kind of thing that we'd have been sharing a YouTube video of, nerdily, 15 years ago. Mm. Rearranging, breaking down the authority of the work originally for full orchestra. It's absolutely gorgeous. It's not better than the original Nimrod, but it doesn't have to be. It's just something new, something fresh, and the kind of thing that you wouldn't have got recorded 20 years ago. Mm. Similarly, I think Sheikh has been really astute in pairing the cello concerto with English folk songs. They fit beautifully, extending that modal E minor world for us. One of the great enthusiast academics, Roger Allen, once told me that the cello concerto's melody was the shape of the Malvern Hills from Elgar's study. And whether that's true or not, probably not true. 
it talks to how the cello concerto is really rooted in the landscape of England and that earthiness that all the best recordings seem to have about them. By adding in the folk song element, Sheku has taken something that was under the surface and brought it to the foreground for us as listeners. The works by Ernst Bloch on the disc are also an interesting choice, and he's brought another sort of nationalist onto the CD. Bloch was a Jewish composer and was, in a way, given the identity of being the Jewish nationalist composer at the early part of the 20th century. Elgar is now held up as the great English composer, but of course was never totally comfortable in that identity, what with being a Catholic growing up slightly outside the establishment. Nimrod is based on Beethoven after all, is it not? Well, exactly. And so having a composer like Bloch who fulfills a similar criteria and shows that other nations, other parts of the world, other races have these kind of figureheads as well just shows how we have identified so much with Elgar, but perhaps that's us inscribing meaning on that work. Again, I think it's a really astute choice by Sheku. And it brings Bloch to the fore, who I'd only ever come across before, thanks to Alice Poppleton's undergraduate dissertation. And it's lovely, lovely stuff. It really deserves a bit more exposure. But you haven't yet spoken about the concerto itself. Well, yeah, I'm coming to it. It's the meat in the sandwich. It's why people will be buying the disc. And it's notable that this is probably the best resourced recording of the Elgar Cello Concerto that's ever happened. Right, you've got... Abbey Road Studios, Simon Rassel, the LSO. Never has that amount of money been thrown at this piece before. Mm. And you can hear it. Like The recording quality is astoundingly good. The LSO sound wonderful, as they always do. And that's quite a big burden to drop on this young man, Sheku. But I think he does rise to meet a lot of that expectation. And in fact, he's already met it by those things I've spoken about earlier, by taking interesting choices. And that's something that he also does throughout the concerto. From a soloist perspective, it's a very well-connected recording with a beautiful flow through the work. You can really hear how something that occurs at the end resonates with the earlier iterations of it. Elgar, at its best, I think, is layers and layers of meaning where you manage to say similar things over and over again until that final utterance really says all of them at once a denouement yeah and he he has very satisfying denouement moments yes because he understands how each piece fits together and inscribes them all with that little layer of meaning he's and a puzzler emotion. isn't he i think i mean that's what comes across is that he has played this work a number of times over the last three four years and now he knows how he wants to put it all together it feels very complete as a performance and there is something moving about his playing. Don't ask me what it is. I, you know, in The mechanics of the cello bow remain a mystery to me. But there is something about his changes of direction, his way of going from a forte to a piano on an absolute pinhead that really do matter. They really mean something. And that is a wonderful gift. It's the, you know, that X factor, that bit that you can't pin down. I think that's why he's getting all these resources thrown at him. And it's also quite a different performance from his one he gave at the proms a few years ago with the CBSO and Mirge Konstantin because that one to me is a huge, that's the the one you expect from a young man. It's big and it's extroverted and the, the important moments are the loud ones. In this, it's the intimate moments that really draw your attention. And I think that shows a kind of maturity. Actually, also, interestingly, I think you can hear a technical development from that point uh, before in the section in the promise performance it comes just fractionally unstuck or you could, you're aware of how difficult it is perhaps mm. now it's all expression it's all meaning there's not really any consideration of the mechanics going on at all it's all about the direction that he's heading to my only 
drawback, I think, possibly, is in the orchestral tutties, the emotional content seems to stall a touch, which is unusual, right? Because it's Simon Rattle mm. and you're, who, would, who else would you ask to conduct an English masterwork? But just for me, the rendering of them is too grand, particularly the hold-ups. I don't know if that's just a deliberate decision that I disagree with and that he is making the same sort of statements that the soloist makes, but then on a bigger scale, which is fair enough, right? Soloist and then orchestra. I think it's just, for me, it feels like that journey that Sheku is painting doesn't totally cohere with the orchestra. And that's it's just such a small point. It's, it's interesting that Simon Rattle has gone and, and gone that direction, and yet he is the old master, as it were. Yeah. And Sheku has gone the opposite direction in, compared to this promise performance you were talking about. Bizarrely, it's the young man showing maturity is what it feels mm. like, whereas the old man is sort of thrilled and got that that verve of the teenager mm. about him. Um, but overall, it's an absolutely wonderful disc. I've really, really enjoyed listening to it over the last couple of weeks. And I think the reason it's better than a Harry Potter movie is that a Harry Potter movie is an open goal, right? If any movie with Harry Potter in the title is going to make a, hundreds of millions of pounds because people are going to turn up and see it. Sheku is now at a point in his career where any disc he puts out is an open goal. It will already be a big commercial success. They will be able to make the money back on Abbey Road and the LSO and Simon Rattle. And yet, with that open goal, he's done something really creative and he's done interesting, unusual things like the folk songs, like starting unaccompanied cello. Whereas the Harry Potter films were just telling the story exactly the same as the book, right? They 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 didn't capitalise on the opportunity that they had. Mm. I feel like Sheku really has. Composer fact file, Ernst Bloch. Born July 24, 1880, Geneva to Jewish parents. He's not Ernst Bloch, the German Marxist philosopher. Began playing the violin age nine. His father wanted him to become a rabbi. He later claimed the Hebrew spirit was one of his most important inspirations. He took U.S. citizenship in 1924. His lover, the pianist Ada Clement, appointed him as the director of the San Francisco Conservatory of Music. Returning to Europe in 1930, he experienced anti-Semitism and escaped to the U.S. before the outbreak of World War II. His opera Macbeth was banned in Italy by Mussolini because it was written by a Jew. A keen amateur photographer, he took 6,000 negatives. In 1954, he wrote a symphony for trombone and orchestra. He died of rectal cancer aged 74. The last two pieces he wrote before his diagnosis were called Funeral Music and Life Again. He once said... I live in the world like a stranger. Composer Bernard Hughes has been a friend and supporter of the Classical Music Pod for nearly as long as it's been running. So when we found out that he had a new album of music coming out called Not Now Bernard and Other Stories, we thought that would be the perfect opportunity to meet up and chat about his life as a composer and the new disc. 
I should also apologise to Bernard and listeners that, despite a lot of fuss over microphones, I still managed to use a dodgy XLR cable, and that's the reason for the little bit of fuzz in the background, so just do your best to ignore that. Probably best to just go straight into Not Now Bernard and other stories, which I listened to last night and this morning. Thank you. So the title track is narrated by Alexander Armstrong. It's based on the children's book by David McKee. That's right. Who I know is the author of Elmer the Patchwork Elephant. Yes. But the only reference I had for this kind of music, which is written for children as well as adults, yep. not specifically just for children, is that is Tchaikovsky's Peter and the Wolf. Yep. Yep. And I wondered how much of an influence that piece had been for you. Well, I, I knew Peter and the Wolf when I was growing up. It was, a, it was one of the few records we had, so I did know it. And it was an inspiration to an extent, although... What it tends to happen in Peter and the Wolf is you get narration and then some music, narration, then some music, narration, then some music. And I wanted to write a piece where the narration is integrated into the music. So the music is running as underscore the whole time, sometimes as sustained notes and sustained chords, but often underpinning the the, the narration. Um, And in places also in Not Now Bernard, the phrase Not Now Bernard, which keeps coming back, is is rhythmic in the vocal part and is doubled in the orchestra. Yeah. So you get a kind of musical connection, which isn't there in Peach and the Wolf, and that's not to criticise Peach and the Wolf, but that's a thing I took on a bit further. And that's actually a trick, interestingly, that I first discovered in Judith Weir, and Judith Weir is also on the album, because uh, Judith Weir's piece, The Constellations of Scholarship, has exactly that trick, where the, the narrator speaks, but the instruments play in rhythm, a kind of melodic phrase underneath it. Mm. So I, I acknowledge my debt to, to Judith on that one. Was she the biggest kind of reference that you had for writing that kind of music or was there were there other people as well i don't know especially that i that i was aware of other things there's there's a um, a paul patterson setting of roald dahl which is for orchestra and, and narrator and that's done quite a lot in in these kind of concerts that not now bernard was written for which are uh, family concerts for orchestra but i i kind of think i did my own thing i i, I wasn't too influenced beyond knowing what these pieces were out there mm. and i think i was very keen to write fairly sophisticated music but also music that has tunes and it's almost without flattering myself symphonic in the way that some of the motifs of the the themes are developed for example in the the other David McKee story as well as Noisy Tummy there's a main theme which gets developed as a march and as a doctor's theme and it and it appears as uh, in various guises through the piece so so I was almost trying to play with with quite sophisticated musical techniques in a way that if you don't notice doesn't matter and if you Mm. notice might be quite nice to notice when i listened to it it was a relief to find that you hadn't dumbed it down so to say because you listen to so much music for children's tv for example and you just think what are they thinking so you deliberately avoided yeah and i think in terms of inspiration certainly an inspiration was now for your generation david mckee is is elmer the patchwork elephant for my generation is mr ben and that has a wonderful score by by a jazz composer duncan lamont which absolutely doesn't compromise on uh, on anything and so that kind of thing was an inspiration and then when my children were young and i had to sit through some of these these programs the one that leapt out as being good was uh, a program called charlie and lola which again has a fantastic score played by live instruments and is and is really great so i think i absolutely viewed it as thinking um how is this going to appeal but also let's make them work hard in, in places let's let's not dish it up on a plate and and there's no, at no stages there are kind of i don't know rumpty tumpty um one five one five kind of progression it's it's more sophisticated than that but like i say without ever wanting to feel like it's mm. sophisticated do you think your experience writing for the school in which you work which is potentially for younger people do you think that 
fed into what you were yeah. doing. Yeah, although interestingly, I often, when I'm writing for the school, I often feel my job is to challenge them a bit and to actually, they play a lot of mainstream repertoire and so actually I want to, when I write for them, I'm going to maybe push them more towards uh, experimental music or, or, or avant-garde music or whatever. So in fact, maybe my school music is, is more challenging than that. I think the way I approach any um, composing is that um, I, I teach, take each piece as a problem that, that needs to be solved. And whatever's the appropriate solution will determine the style. So I don't have a style that is my style. I will write as the occasion demands. Mm. So on this piece, that means tunes. On another piece, it, yeah. it won't do. And, and, and the success of, of a piece is, is how successfully it answers the question that's being asked. So you've spoken about Judith Weir. As you said, she appears on the album with Malcolm Arnold as well. Yes, yes. And John Ireland. Yes. Are they uniquely special to you as a composer not not especially but certainly the conductor of the of the album tom hammond has a strong connection with malcolm arnold and he recently i think two or three years ago performed a sequence of of malcolm arnold's symphonies really when we put the album together we were just looking for pieces that might go um, with a similar instrumentation ones perhaps that haven't been recorded with narrator so the malcolm arnold doesn't have narrator but is clearly in that same realm of serious but a bit comic the John Ireland hasn't been recorded before and is a change of tone for the piece because it's just a bit of variety. It's just a little um, four-minute, uh, five-minute piece. And the Judith Weir was just a stroke of luck that I found this piece, which of hers had never been recorded, which I, there's not much of hers that hasn't been recorded, has virtually the same instrumentation, has a narrator, was the right length. Mm. So it was a kind of happy chance. And when, and when I contacted her and said, would you be interested in, in us recording this, she was... Completely delighted, yes. <laughs> so it's not thematic in that sense, but it was, I think, a happy accident that we could find this selection of pieces that just yeah. sit together quite nicely. It certainly feels, listening to it, like they were, they're were they very much meant to yeah, be well, on that not, disc. Good. And yeah. Judith Weir especially, I don't know with, whether it's whether I associate you with her because of your mutual relationship with the BBC singers yes, and that she yes. was, I think, associate, associate composer. composer yeah. Yeah. And you've worked a lot with the BBC singers yeah, as well. Yeah. I was wondering if, if she had had an impact on you as a composer in your career. Oh, yeah, hugely. So, so she was a composer I discovered when I was a student. I had a teacher introduce me to her work. Her sound world is, is something that, that, that grabbed me. I'm, I'm, I was always a big Stravinsky fan as a teenager, still am. And, and she's got that edge of Stravinsky, but maybe a slightly more human side to her than, than Stravinsky has. She's brief and to the point. There's a choral piece of hers called, I think it's called The Cid, El Cid, which has a choir and a narrator over the top of the choir although it's the narrator in the gaps of the choirs, influenced a piece of mine, The Death of Balder, which has a Norse myth with a narrator. So some specific things in that, like I mentioned, that the technique she uses of, of underscoring narration with rhythm. But I would say my inspiration more from her is, is just the general kind of sound world, the use of consonants within a dissonant sound world as well. I like the use of... of wind instruments that she uses and and in terms of her choral music absolutely an inspiration although when I first listened to her music I wasn't a choral composer at all I, I started writing choral music quite late so I came to her choral music quite late and yet that's become your slightly accidentally so I, I have no background in in choirs at all I didn't sing in choirs as a child I have no real or had no background in choral repertoire. So where's that come from then? So, so, I mean, one of the things was just a coincidence that I won a BBC Singer's Call for Scores, which led to, a, to my first commission for them, and I discovered that I really liked writing choral music, mm -hmm. and I've done lots of choral arrangements for the schools where I've worked. That's a good way to train writing for students. 
you know, the, the problem with writing for the BBC singers is they will sing anything. So there's a danger you can you can get sucked into writing impossible things. So the fact I've also written for, for schools, I've written for amateur singers, it, it's a very good grounding. But it was really accidental that I became a choral composer and I just found once I was doing it that I, that I really loved it, that I had things I wanted to say, that I had texts that I wanted to set. And I've collected for years texts that, that, that go in my bottom drawer. And so, for example, I've got this um, BBC Singers Commission that I that's being uh, premiered later this month. Ternary of the Ternary of Littles, Littles yeah. and one of the poems there. In fact, one of the poems there I, just, I, I was introduced to when I did A-Level English, so I've had that in, in my back pocket. <laughs> the middle one, the piece called A Ternary of Littles, I discovered probably about 15 years ago, and I thought, mm. I must set that, and that sat there. And then the third of them, actually, is a much more recent, is a wonderful poet called Michael Simmons Roberts, who I was introduced to. Is, is there any, other than sort of the practicalities and the, and the falling into it, is there anything more sort of philosophical about your your need to write choral music above others or I think I'm interested so I'm interested in writing consonant music but not in writing tonal music and I when I'm writing instrumental music when you can do anything I find it more difficult to, to, to find a sound world when you're writing choral music where to an extent consonants has to be the the starting point because of, of singers tuning their notes and, tune, and, and finding pitches. I find it interesting to start from the framework of consonants and work outwards. So, for example, in an early piece called The Silver Swan, I did a setting of, of The Silver Swan that's famous in the, the version by Orlando Gibbons. And I have in that, for example, a cluster chord. And the way I do the cluster chord is the choir sing up a scale and just one by one stop off on that note. That couldn't, you could never pitch that cluster out of nothing, but you place it out of a scale. That, for me, is one of the interesting things with choirs. How do you start from dissonance mm. and work outwards? Yeah. The way that you originally came to composing as a child, I understand, was by discovering manuscript paper and scribbling on it. Have I got that right? Yeah. So, so my, my mother tells me that the earliest um, uh, composition I did was, was I had, when I was five and I had a piano teacher who who would ask me to improvise and she'd write down what I was improvising mm. but certainly the earliest music that I was that I was myself writing down was was by finding manuscript paper yeah. um, around the house my father was a, a church musician church choir master and yeah so I started just writing on paper it makes me think of my own gateway into composing if you will uh, not that I'm <laughs> as esteemed as yourself but I got into that via an old version of the notation software, Sibelius, yeah. which had been on the family computer, which my brother used, right. uh, who was a pianist, but I, I was not a pianist. And at that time, because I couldn't play the piano, I, I wouldn't have been able to hear what mm. I'd written mm. back anyway. Mm. Mm. All of a sudden, this software comes along, and I can put in whatever I like, and I can actually hear what it sounds like, and I can get a real sense of building a piece and pacing yeah. and... That was a really important moment for me. Since then, music technology has advanced exponentially, you could say. I wanted to know, as in your experience as a parent and a composer in residence mm. at St Paul's Girls' School, have you witnessed an effect on the way people are getting into composition or the type of people that are getting into composition as a result of these advances? Yeah, absolutely. So within my life, I started out obviously writing on paper and converted to computers in my, I guess, early 20s. And then within my teaching career, when I first was teaching GCSE and A-level composing, students were working on paper. And then over the course of the early years of my teaching, we, we moved on to using computers, whether using Sibelius originally, uh, Logic to an extent. Nowadays, I use Dorico with my students. Um, and 
I find that that is a real help to the students mm. in, in terms of, as you say, being able to hear back what they're doing. I find in terms of saving progress. So, for example, I get students to resave their file every week so we can go back and check where they've come from where, and, and they can make a steadier progress. Whereas I did used to find with students working on just on paper, the, the kind of blank piece of paper syndrome or just sitting mm. staring at the paper, not knowing what to do next with software. You can try something out. If you don't like it, you, you erase it and you go back. Um, the downside, uh, the, one of the things I like about paper and why I still use paper myself is that if you cross something out, you can still see what's lying underneath it. So I quite like the, that feeling. And I like the immediacy of writing, but equally, you know, I can see, and especially for students who don't have the keyboard facility, the opportunity to hear it back mm. is, is super valuable. And I think... There is now, when I first started with computers, there was a maybe a generation of older composers who, who felt that it wasn't quite the thing to do, that it was a failure of imagination, um, that it was in some way shortcutting. And, and I certainly feel when you get software that will do anything, then if you're not aware of what you want to do, there is a danger of asking it to do ridiculous things. Or So I think there is still an important grounding in, in music theory and writing things out by hand can teach you for example, if you're writing by hand and you have to decide if the stem goes up or down, mm. it's not a big thing, but it just makes you aware of the decisions that are involved in making notation. And often with scores that I do um, that are more complex, I will often map them out by hand on paper so I know how I want them to look before I go into the computer. And, and it's almost the computer then becomes a graphical piece of software. But with those caveats... I, I think software use has, has been fantastic for the mm. students I work with. The school in which you work at is, is, for those that don't know, also played host to a couple to of... To Holst, Holst, Vaughan Williams, uh, Herbert Howells and John Gardner, amongst others. More yeah. recently, Derek Bourgeois and Julian Grant have, it's, have it's been... It's quite a legacy. A real you, legacy, you've, yeah, yeah. You've joined, as it Absolutely, were. yeah. 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 And, and the school are very conscious of that and the students are very conscious. Do you feel... Do you wear that heavily or... Or is it not something no, you No, I love it because, it, because it, the school is so proud of that. I'm, you know, it's great that I'm part of that tradition. Interestingly, a lot of those, those previous composers who were mostly directors of music, and I'm not the director of music, uh, most of those composers didn't actually write a great deal for the school. So although they were there, they had their professional careers, and they were often there only at the school halted between three days a week and one, at times one day a week at the school. So it wasn't the full-on commitment that it is now. And, and they wrote other, other stuff for other, other people. So although they all wrote for the school, and John Gardner famously wrote, um, Tomorrow Will Be My Dancing Day for the, for yeah. the school, um, and that's sung every year, I suspect I've written more in my five years, more pieces specifically for the school, possibly than, than any of those other composers. So, so the school are very encouraging. I've got some very encouraging uh, colleagues who, who are willing to program my pieces and encourage me to, to program my pieces and ask me for new pieces. So it's actually a pleasure. It's not a, it's not yeah. a, a stress. I don't feel a stress. But, um, you know, I'm aware that, you know, it, it's, a, it's a private school and that I'm, I'm very fortunate um, to work in that environment and that it does support music. But I'm also, and I'm aware that in, in difficult times for state school music, and I'm very aware of that, and, and, and it pains me as, a, as I was at a state school myself, and that there are beacons like the school where my children are at, which is Gravney School in Tooting, which has the most extraordinary music department run by uh, Sam Coates and Caroline King, who... Um, encourage innovate do music that appeals to all range of students and I think as much as I'm proud of the work I do at my school 
I'm in awe of the work they do at that school and the fact that they can take um, a, a comprehensive intake and do absolute wonders. The school orchestra performing Finlandia is, is just wonderful and, and the, the opportunity my children have to, to play in that. So while I, while I accept that, that I do a certain amount in my job, I doff my cap to people like that. And I know there's lots of other around the, uh, uh, people like that around the country. Bernard, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, thank you very much for hosting me in your lovely house. <laughs> Not at all, thank you for making it here. <laughs> Bernard's mother came upstairs to turn out the light. The album is called Not Now Bernard and Other Stories and is released on Orchid Classics on the 7th of February. Sam, tell us what's coming up over the next few weeks in the classical music world. If you're new to opera and looking for a bite-sized introduction from the 5th February to the 7th of March at Trafalgar Studios in Charing Cross, London, Opera Undone are presenting a Puccini double bill. They've condensed Tosca and La Boheme into 60-minute performances sung in English and set in Hollywood and Peckham, respectively. Nicola Benedetti will be playing Bartok's Violin Concerto with the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra on the 8th at Birmingham Symphony Hall. Incidentally, you can hear her talk about her new foundation on the previous episode. It's a good one. February the 8th is also John Williams's birthday. Happy mm. birthday, John. On Sunday the 9th of Feb at Milton Court near the Barbican in London, the BBC Singers will be taking families on a journey to the Singdom Kingdom with a musical adventure curated by Andrew McCaldon and Struan Leslie. Also on the 9th, the Ladore Trio will be playing new music for flute, viola and piano as part of the Dark Sky series of concerts at St Martha on the Hill, a church in the Surrey countryside only accessible by foot. Also on the February the 9th, it's Alban Berg's birthday. Happy birthday, Alban. From the 8th to the 16th, the enigmatic Iceland Symphony Orchestra will be touring the UK under the baton of Jan Pascal Tartelier with performances in Nottingham, Norwich, London, Birmingham, Cardiff, Basingstoke, Leeds and Edinburgh. They'll be playing music by Stravinsky, Berlioz, Bizet, Ravel and Prokofiev, as well as their composer-in-residence, Anna... Mm, it's a tough one. Go on. Thorvalds de Tour. Mm, yes. From the 14th to the 15th, there is a selection of candle-lit concerts at various venues across the UK. Jumping on the Valentine's Day bandwagon, take your pick of St John's Waterloo, St James Piccadilly, Cadogan Hall, Coventry and Ely Cathedrals, Usher Hall and St Giles in Edinburgh, St Anne's Manchester, St George's Hall and the Philharmonic Hall in Liverpool. On Saturday the 15th, at the Fidelio Orchestra Cafe in London, why not book yourself onto a four-course winter supper club served alongside live classical music from the Bairn Quartet? Mm, and February the 15th is, incidentally, John Adams' birthday, one he shares with Ernest Shackleton, Matt Groening of The Simpsons, Galileo Galilei, and Louis XV of France. Like and subscribe. Like and subscribe. Before we sign off, I'd like to encourage you to tell all your friends about the podcast and leave a review if you've liked what you've heard. A couple of thank yous as well. A big thank you to Don McDonald for sharing his music with us. And to composer Bernard Hughes for talking to me about Not Now Bernard and other stories. A big thank you to Elizabeth Llewellyn and also to Elizabeth from Decca Records who allowed us to use the Sheku clip. 
We're off to enjoy what's left of this palindrome day. Will it end as it began? 